You are listening to Overcomers Church International Podcast. Here at OCI, we are dedicated to our vision of building strong people and building strong churches. From wherever you are listening, we hope that this message leaves you equipped and encouraged. So I'm, what I'm going to do is finish what I started last week, and uh, what I shared last week was about overcoming a performance mentality, and this is something that I believe is one of the most important things that we can ever get a hold of because the way that we relate to the Lord is opposite of performance. So our performance does not impress God. And I think sometimes we have to be careful with language because, you know, we can do things that are displeasing to the Lord, but that doesn't mean that the Lord is displeased with us. That's a really important distinction to make because, and for those of you that have kids, you understand what I'm talking about. There's lots of times, maybe daily, that they do things that are displeasing and you think, boy, but you know, in your heart, you don't become displeased with them. They're still your child. And God is the same way towards us. He is pleased with us. He loves us. And we don't, there is no uh, requirement other than what the devil, religion, or we place on ourselves to perform for God to accept us, to bless us, or to keep accepting us, to keep blessing us. And the reason that this is, and I've ministered, for those of you that have been listening to me, you know, minister for enough years or even months, you've heard me share these things. But I go back to these often, and so I know that it's important to take you, know, you guys back to these things often and remind ourselves that we don't, we don't have a need to perform. And the reason that we have to go back and visit this is because it's ingrained in humanity. It is the problem of humanity. It is the problem that came in the garden and has been passed to every single person that's, that's ever taken a breath in this life. They have to overcome this idea, this intuitive knowledge that they have to do something in order to be right or to be loved, to be accepted, to be blessed, to be whatever it is by God, that's inside of people. And so we have to learn how to really overcome it. But the the big blessing is, is that it's really already been done through the finished work of the cross. We just have to have a full knowledge, a full picture of really what's taken place at the cross. You know, in Colossians, and I'm not going to take time to go there, but in Colossians chapter two, there's this great... um, basically an analogy that's there. And it talks about how that, that Christ nailed everything that was written against us, all the handwriting of requirements that were written against us. This is in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, which the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that's talking about the law. And it's talking about any kind of anything that would say you have to do in order to be. And it says that he nailed those things to the cross making a public spectacle of them openly. And what that's referring to is this thing called the triumphant procession. Who's heard of the triumphant procession before? Okay, not enough of you. All right, good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna but for those of you that know it, that's good. Uh, so the triumphant procession is this. Whenever the Romans would conquer a king and or a territory or region or whatever and whoever that leader was, they would take that leader or that king and they would capture him and they would cut off his thumbs so he could never hold a sword, and they would cut off his big toes so he could never run in battle again. And then they would take that king, that leader, and parade him around so that everybody could see this triumphant procession that 
they came and they conquered, and now the, the enemy is no longer a factor. And so when it's saying that Jesus nailed all of the requirements that were against us, a lot of people don't know this, but the law was not for you. The strength of sin is the law. That's 1 Corinthians 15 verse something, 50 something, I think. The strength of sin is the law. You want to know how to strengthen sin in your life? Go tell yourself all this, all the stuff, the do's and the don'ts. I've had people tell me before, Pastor, we need the Ten Commandments hanging up in here. I'm like, why, why would I put the Ten Commandments up in here? God's written his law of love on our hearts. The Ten Commandments were what was written and engraved in stone. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or 3, something like that, it's in there. It says that what was written and engraved on stones, only talking about the Ten Commandments, are a ministry of death. Go and read it for yourself. Some people are like, we did the Ten Commandments. I'm like, actually, I think we need a cross and an empty tomb. That sounds better to me. Because the cross and the empty tomb says that Jesus did all the work, and he resurrected in all of the power, and I don't have to perform anymore. So the handwriting of requirements, not just the Ten Commandments, but all, and I'm not saying the commandments are bad, but trying to be justified by them is bad. Amen. So... All of those things that were written against you that didn't help you because the commandments never helped anybody overcome anything. They just revealed the need that people had for a savior. That's why God gave it is because people were becoming like, uh, like good in their own eyes. So what happened like when, for example, when Cain killed Abel, which I talk about in that, in that book, Vagabond book. But when Cain killed Abel, it says that God avenged him. And said, if, and he put a mark on me. He said, if anybody messes with Cain, then I'm going to avenge him sevenfold. So then Cain's like three or four grandsons down, like great, great, great grandson, whatever it was, Lamech, he killed a man out of self-defense. And he said, this is what he said, if God avenged Cain sevenfold, he'll avenge me 77-fold. So in other words, I'm pretty justified in what I did because what I did wasn't as bad as what Cain did. And this is the reason, this mentality is the reason that the law had to come in to show people that they weren't right in their own eyes and they had to have somebody save them. So when the law came in, it was a schoolmaster, Galatians says it was a schoolmaster or a tutor, not to tell us all of the right things to do, but to help us see we can never live right enough to be accepted by God. And you want to know, here's another nugget that surprises people. You know, why, you know why Jesus was one of the reasons he was so hard on the Pharisees? It says that when he spoke, one time when he spoke to the Pharisees, he said, you've made the commandments of God because of your tradition, you've made the commandments of God of no effect. And a lot of times we'll take that and be like, traditions ruining the word of God. And that can, that can be true. People get into all kinds of religious tradition and they don't even care what the word of God says. That can be true. But when he was saying that to the Pharisees, what he was saying is that you have taken the word of God and you have placed it here and you have taken your traditions and placed them above the word of God. And you've made your own level of what's required for righteousness. When all along I said, this is the requirement for righteousness. And that's why the law was supposed to be preached so that people could look at it and go, I can't do that. 
And then the one preaching should have had enough sense to say, that's exactly right. You better put your faith in him. See, the gospel, even before Jesus came and provided through the cross, the gospel was still being preached. It was still in the earth. It was God's goodness for man. It's just that the fullness didn't come until Christ. But there was always a way through faith for people to be made right with God. So going back to Colossians chapter 2, which we never even looked at, uh, verse 14 and 15, that triumphant procession, everything that was against you, Jesus took the enemy. He stripped all of the power. Remember, the strength of sin is the law, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The strength of sin is the law. He took all the power of the law that was against you, and he stripped the enemy. So anytime the enemy would come to you and say, you haven't done this right, and you didn't do this right, and you haven't done enough of this, and you haven't read your Bible enough, and you didn't go to church enough times last year, and you know all of these things that he could put in there. If we understand what Christ did for us, all of that power has been completely stripped away, and he no longer has anything to hold over our head. That's what you call power right there. That's power for living. It's not throwing out the idea that there's, that there's right and wrong. So you've got some knuckle-headed so-called grace preachers out there right now that are saying, it doesn't matter how you live. You can live however. I've even heard people say, God doesn't even know when you sin. I can tell you firsthand, God knows when you sin. <laughs> Have them show up in your dreams at night telling you you're not talking right or thinking right. He knows when you sin. But just understand this, your sin isn't separating you from God. It's your consciousness of that sin that separates you from God. And not just individual sins, but the sin nature that we used to have. And for those of, those, uh, those of us that have been born again, we don't have a sin nature anymore. But what we got is some residue from the old thinking. It's kind of like whenever they, uh, I use this analogy before, this helped people. Whenever communism fell in uh, former Soviet Union, and when it fell, before it fell, under communism, people were told where to work, uh, where they were going to buy groceries, in some cases, probably even who they were going to marry, uh, where they were going to send their kids to school. I mean, every, their whole life was under so much control that what happened is that when communism fell, and I've been, I've been there, actually, I've been to Russia, and you can still feel the grip of communism on the people. They still think that way. Even though, well, some might argue whether they're free or not. Based on their current leader, I would say they're probably not because he's not really a leader. He's a dictator and so on and so forth. But, I mean, he needs help. He needs Jesus. He needs to get out of office, get Jesus. Anyways, stay out of that, Kent. Uh, but those people, they, were, they got freed from communism, but they still thought like they were in communism. They still acted like they were underneath the bondage. And this is how a lot of people live. They get set free in Christ, but then they still live like they're underneath of the rule of the enemy. And this is where a lot of people get confused because they'll say, oh yeah, they're living in sin. Well, that's one manifestation of living underneath of the, the thumb of the enemy. But another manifestation is always feeling like you don't measure up enough because of either what you did or who you used to be. A sin consciousness puts the emphasis on your past. A clean Christ-centered consciousness puts the emphasis on the cross. And it says that it is more than enough. It's more than enough to cover what you did. To cover your current struggle and praise God even to cover your future one. Yeah. 
You know how I know this? Because I got this revelation years ago and I had struggles between then and now and I'm still standing here today and God still speaks to me. He still ministers to me. He's still breathing life into my family, into my heart, into my home, into the church, all the things I'm responsible for. God is still with me. Why? Because I'm so great? No, because he is so great. So overcoming a, a performance mentality, it's, it's something that we have to learn to conquer, and we do it through the word of God. And so what happens is that we tend to be old nature conscience. We, conscious. We tend to think in terms of, of the old man. And a lot of it is, it's already there as human beings. I'm telling you, this is something that every human faces, but then it gets reinforced. And I'm telling you, my blood was so boiling this, this early this morning. It, it gets so enforced by religion. Religion is this. When I say religion, I mean Satan's plan for the church. Some people mean something good, but to me, there's a religious spirit and it's really Satan's plan for the church. And I heard this, this guy Man, young people, before they, even if they have an anointing, they need to be vetted before they, they're given a pulpit and a microphone. And I, I heard this guy, powerful anointing on him, preaching. And he's, he's standing up there and he's preaching to whatever. And it was just a, it was just a reel. It was just a little clip. And he goes, he goes on to tell all of the people that the reason they're not, I, I kid you not, the reason that they are not fasting and praying and that they don't have a desire to fast and pray is because they're not sheep, they're goats, and they've never been born again. And I thought, well, this is the kind of, if I could throw out some cuss words here, it would be fitting, but I won't throw out any cuss words because it wouldn't be fitting in church or at any time to cuss, so I won't do that. But if I could find a place to cuss that it would be appropriate, it would be right here. That's garbage. And it's the reason why people stay in bondage. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever, at any point, went to pray or too fast, and you lacked desire for it. Let me just see a show of hands. Let's just see. Everybody look around here. Oh, you bunch of goats, non-born again people. I mean, that's basically what this guy was saying. And I thought, for somebody that doesn't know what the scriptures say and what God did, they would be brought right back underneath of a condemning system that was planned by the devil to make people think that they're not right with God, even though God says that they are right because their righteousness is not based on their performance. It's based on the performance of Jesus. Amen. Is fasting good? Yeah. Is praying good? You betcha. And you could add anything else in there. But you know what? I've had, de I've had desires or lack of desire for things that I should have had desire before. And when I was younger and less knowledgeable in, in, in the word and more immature in my relationship with the Lord, I lived under condemnation from that stuff. I didn't just visit condemnation. I lived in condemnation because I never felt like I measured up. And now I'll say this, that Liz is a great faster. I am, in, G in Jesus' name, I'm getting better at it, amen? So, but you know, I want to do things. I love to pray. I love to worship the Lord. Why? Because I want him to accept me? No, because he already has accepted me. Everything's been flipped upside down and people are just so confused about this. But listen, I'm gonna take the word here and I'm gonna get you unconfused. Can you all stand to read just a little bit with me here this morning? Thank you. Uh, those two. You got, listen, you guys are so incredibly obedient. You don't have to stand up to read. <laughs> Woo! guys are awesome, man. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And you just did it. 
I was like, I was like, are they leaving? Did I offend them? What's going on? <laughs> oh, man. That was good. That was good. Can you tolerate me reading a little bit here? Okay. Nobody responded, and I was like, oh, but you did. You stood up. So, all right. Here we go. <laughs> Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. What I really want to do is start at chapter 1 and read all the way to the end to give you a full picture, but that would be too much reading, and I'll let you do that on your own. But what I'm talking about, if you can get a hold of the book of Hebrews and understand what it's saying, and the book of Romans, and the book of Galatians, those, those are the primary ones. It will really, really help you with this revelation that I'm giving you here about not being sin conscious. This doesn't mean that you don't know when you make a mistake. That's not what I'm talking about. When I first heard this, I was like, is the preacher saying that I shouldn't even know when I'm wrong? No, no. When you're in tune with God, you'll know when you're wrong. He'll help you see that. You'll feel that. You'll sense that. A lot of times you just know it anyways, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about not living underneath of a consciousness of an old sin nature and coming out from underneath of that. That's what I'm talking about. And so in Hebrews, it talks about, this is the theme of the book of Hebrews. It's this, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels, and it goes through this whole list, better than angels. He's better than the law. He's better than the, than the priest. He's better than the sacrifices. He's better than everything, because these Hebrews, what they were, they were at a crossroad to where they were either going to go back underneath of the old system of doing things, or they were going to fully embrace Christ, and they were struggling with that. So the writer of Hebrews was writing to them and telling them, all the things that you used to do uh, were for of old, but now the reformer, Jesus, has come in and he's brought reformation to the system. And you can find that language in chapter 9. But he's brought reformation to the system. And so now the priest and the sacrifice was enough for all time, for all people, and we don't have to go back underneath an, underneath an old system. That catches you up to chapter 10. Verse 1, it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offered continually year by year make those who approach perfect. You understand that? So what it's saying is that all these sacrifices that they were, they were constantly made, it didn't bring perfection to people. That's why they had to continually be made. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, now listen to this language here, would have had no more consciousness of sins. And why is that? It's because this. Whenever specifically, there was, there was all kinds of sacrifices that, that the Jews did, but particularly or specifically on the Day of Atonement, which was one time a year, for anything, the Day of Atonement was basically this. Anything that did not get covered in that year, the Day of Atonement was, it was like a gap filler. It was like, okay, there's some things in there we missed, we probably all missed. We're going to have a Day of Atonement, and it's going to cover everything in the past year that we might have missed. That's essentially what the Day of Atonement was for. But do you know that they had a Day of Atonement every year? You know why? Because as soon as the Day of Atonement was over... Probably half the people, by the time they got done traveling back to their houses and they 
they tripped on rocks with sandals and stubbed their toes. You all know what happens when you stub your toe, don't you? You know, uh, or their kids acted up or something, they immediately started breaking the commandments. And so what happened is that the, the next day, the next week, they'd come in and they would make burnt offerings. They would bring their own little precious lambs in. They would sacrifice them. And it was always a reminder that they were never fully made right. And so the only time that they had a clean conscience was at the Day of Atonement when it was done until the next time that they messed up. But for me, I've got a clean conscience because of what Christ did. It doesn't mean I want to mess up or try to mess up or don't care if I mess up and do things wrong. I do care, and I, and I, I work to live out what God has made, how he's made me on the inside. But my conscience isn't heavy. It's clean before the Lord. So it says that they would have uh, had no more consciousness of sins. So it's comparing old to new. And if we really knew what the new was and what, what, it, what was given and provided, we wouldn't have a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not pos- possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It was only a shadow of things to come. Jump down to verse 11 for time's sake. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, how many of y'all know who the man is? Jesus. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice, one, everybody say one. Now in Spanish, uno, <laughs> that's the only two I know. Ichni uh, son, maybe? I don't know. Anyways, um, Forget that. But this man offered, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins until the next day of atonement. No, no. Forever sat down. Why did he sit down? Because there was no more work to do. Why do you sit down when you get home? Because you're done working for the day. He sat down at the right hand of God. So in other words, God fully approved of the work that he did. From that time, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool for by one offering. How many offerings? One offering. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before, this is the covenant, and this is a quotation, I believe, from Jeremiah. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So in other words, when you sin, it's under the blood. When you miss it, it's under the blood. If it's not under the blood, then I suggest you find a way to start making sacrifices. I I, I suggest that you find a way to enter into the Levitical priesthood. Most of you, probably, if not all of you in here, Gentiles. (laughs) Good luck with that. Build yourself a temple. Tabernacle will suffice. You can get a tent. Get it set up just right. Hopefully, the presence of God comes in the Ark of the Covenant that you made, even though you weren't commissioned to make that. But you could make it, and if you have enough gold and stuff to make it the way, and hopefully you can find Aaron's rod that was budded, you know, all that kind of stuff, and, you know, the original, and you can put it in there, and then you can go in and apply blood, and hopefully that will, no, that stuff is done. Even in God's perfect order with humans on the earth, it was never enough to atone. But Christ came in and it was done. Everybody say, stick a fork in that turkey. It's done. Hallelujah. 
Now verse 18, it says, Now where there is remission of these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. And for, so here's where this hits us. Because, and, I'm, and I like to be extreme sometimes to paint a picture. I mean, obviously none of us is going to go and, you know, build a, a tabernacle. I mean, actually I've met a few people that I'm thinking. Like, I love, like, seeing what was in the tabernacle and all that stuff. And, you know, I mean, those are God's people. And he get, all that stuff is precious and valuable. I'm not undermining any of that. But we have a new covenant the old way of doing things wasn't even good enough. And God was the one that set it up. He's like, here, do this. And what was it? It was a shadow. It was a picture. You know, if you see me, if, if we're going to meet for lunch one day and we're, we're going to meet at Mary Jane's and you arrive there before me, you know, it's right on the corner, right? Everybody knows about Mary Jane's. And it's right on the corner. And you know, you could see if the sun was just right, you could be there, arrive before me and you could see... Uh, me coming, if you're around one side of the corner of the building and I'm coming the other way, and the sun was hitting just right, you could see my shadow coming. And you could be like, oh, here he is, he's coming. Do you know that if I arrived there and you ignored me but paid attention to my shadow, first of all, I'd probably think you're a little loony, <laughs> but I'd probably be a little bit ticked off. I mean, here, I took my gas money, I took my time, I probably offered to buy you lunch. And you're paying attention to my shadow? For people that are trying to justify themselves by any form or fashion are looking at the shadow of Jesus and they have ignored the substance of the person himself. So what we, this is how we do this. You want to know how to ignore Jesus when you go into his presence? Here's how you do it. I know because I used to be pretty good at doing it. You come in and you go, Jesus, I just, you, you know that I, I did all the, and listen, there's a place for going, Lord, I really messed up back here. So Lord, I just repent and I receive your forgiveness. That's fine. But when you come in and you belabor your past, what you're doing is you're exalting what you did instead of exalting what he did. It shows you live underneath of a sin consciousness and you're trying to appease or atone for what you did wrong through a bunch of long, weird, strange prayers or, or whatever it is that you feel like you need to do. First of all, it's not even biblical to atone for sins like that in the natural because we see how it used to be biblical to do that with all of the, the sacrifices and the priests and all this stuff. You don't have that. So the only hope you have is to go before the Lord and acknowledge what he's done and say, thank you, Jesus. You and I both know what I said. We both know it, but you're enough. You are enough, God. Man, this is awesome. Let me show you what happens. I'll take, I've got enough time. Okay. Let me show you what happens with our, our conscience. And I've got some slides. Don't, don't pull the first one up yet. Otherwise, they'll, they'll look and not listen. Although you listen pretty well. Can you stand to read some more word with me? <laughs> so good. You have to understand what the conscience is. Um, I, think, I think the enemy takes words that are really important 
and makes people think differently about them than what they really are. So, like, for example, the word love. I mean, hippies messed that up pretty bad. And then nowadays, you have, when you tell somebody the truth, they're like, you don't love me. And it's like, wait a second, actually, love does tell you the truth. But anyways, so the, the conscience is something that I think has been largely misunderstood. And you can go and do your own research as to what you believe the conscience is. But it is, it is a part of us because the word explains that it's a part of us. In our soul, most people, and this is how I used to teach it, um, that our soul is our mind, will, and emotions, and that is true. But it's our conscience is different than our soul. And so where is it located? Is it, just, is it part of our body? No, no, it's in our inner workings and our thinkings. Is it part of our spirit, man? No, because your conscience can be defiled. It can be evil. Uh, it can be dead. It can be all kinds of things. Scripturally, all these terms are there for your conscience. So it can't be in your spirit, man. Because once you get born again, God seals your spirit. No impurities can get in there. So it has to be in the realm of your soul is the only explanation. And so what is your conscience? And your conscience, first of all, is God-given. Just because something is messed up doesn't mean God didn't give it. God made everything, but the enemy perverts everything that he can. So when you see something that's not right, it's not God that made it. It was that the enemy got in and perverted the thing. He messed the thing up, right? So when it comes to having like an evil conscience or a heavy conscience or a, you know, a conscience that is, is not even aware of what's right and wrong, a seared conscience is what that's called. When it comes to those kind of things, it's the enemy that has come in and taken what I call God's decision maker and has messed it up. Your conscience is your decision maker. And the way that, the way that this works is it's kind of like if you have... A, you put your hand over the stove. Your nerves are kind of like your conscience and your nerves will instantly tell you, unless you're not very smart and you've done it a bunch and you've severed all your nerves, but anyways, it's not even funny. But if you put your hand over the stove, instantly you're going to feel that heat and pull back. Are your nerves evil? No, in, in that case, they're a good thing because they're telling you that's bad or a bad thing to do. You need to remove yourself from harm. So our conscience works the exact same way. And when our conscience is submitted to the Lord, it will bring us into health in our life. If it's unsubmitted to the Lord, it will bring us into unhealth. And it will bring us into what I call Satan's cycles. And I've got two different of Satan's cycles. I'm gonna show you a slide about this. But we have to get, come to a place to where our conscience is right before the Lord, but it's right before the Lord because of the grace of Jesus has made it right. Let me read this one verse to you, and I'm going to show you these slides. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. Let's actually start at verse 13. I wish I could start at verse 1, but verse 13, it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You, know what? you want to know how you serve God? You have your conscience clean from dead works. What are dead works? Dead works are works that people do to try to be justified. They look like a good work. 
I mean, they look, yeah, they look like a good work, and in nature they're good, but their motive is to get something from God. It's not just to do it out of a pure heart just because you love God. It's, it's a way of getting something from the Lord. Let me read this, and they may not have it to pull it up on the screen back there, but let me read one more verse, and I'm going to show you these slides quickly. In verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3, so 1 Peter chapter 3, let me read these few verses here. This is really, really good. There's a lot in here that I can't explain, but I want, I want you to see this one part. Because I think that the conscience has been severely under, under understood, misunderstood, not understood. And we need to have a revelation of it because if your conscience is heavy, you cannot go before the Lord. Not how we're supposed to. Clean, free, clear, knowing that the past has been taken care of, our sins have been remitted, we've been fully justified, and through the blood of Christ, we can be brought near. If we don't know that, our conscience will become heavy. And I'm going to show you how in just one second. But look at these verses. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered seven times for sins. Nope. Once for sins. The just for the unjust. He was the just, we were the unjust ones. That he might bring us to God. Notice the language here. One sacrifice to bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, by whom also we, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. There's so much in here, I don't have time. You can go look at this and find this in Luke chapter 15, where it talks about in Abraham's bosom, the people that were of faith were there. They weren't in the presence of God, but Jesus came and set those captives free because they weren't born again. But at that point, they got born again and were able to go into the presence of God. Jesus went and preached to those spirits in prison. That's what it's talking about. Hang with me. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now, here we go. Listen to this. There is also an anti-type, which means that it's, it's saving, but in a different way, which now saves us baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what it's saying is that baptism doesn't remove the filth of the flesh. But what it, because even though we got brand new born again spirits, we all have flesh we're still dealing with. At least I do. I'm still dealing with things. I'm still working things out in my life. It hasn't removed all of that. But what it has done is removed a consciousness that says that I'm not right with God. And the reason is because what Christ did was more than enough to make me right with God. And the same thing for you. Amen. So the conscience, conscience is extremely important. And one more thing I'll just say, this ties all the way back to the garden. And I mentioned this many times because it's, it is a basic principle of, the, of the, how the world operates. When they sinned, they were immediately aware of their nakedness and they were ashamed. Instantly shame entered in. And then what happened? They tried to cover themselves. Did they try to cover themselves before God? Yes, but more than anything, they were trying to cover themselves in their own thinking, how they saw themselves. Because at that point, God had never come, he didn't come to them and say, you wretched things, you. And they were like, oh, let's make coverings. They did that before they even contacted God. Between when they sinned and when they had their next meeting with God, 
they tried to cover themselves because of their shame. Why? Their conscience was heavy. This is why Christ came. It's not just to bring us into heaven. It includes that. And if the only reason you get born again is to get to heaven, that's a good reason. But much more, we should live with an awareness that God's on our side. Let's pull this slide up here. I've got three slides. Boom, boom, boom. I'm going to show you, and then we'll be done. So when the conscience is activated, we enter one of three cycles. So here's what happens when your conscience is activated. You did something wrong, and you know it's wrong. Your conscience is activated, right? Right then, it's activated. It could even be a mistake. How many of y'all made mistakes before, and then you went to beat yourself up? When all your conscience was just trying to tell you is, hey, you weren't right there. It wasn't doing anything else. Your conscience isn't bad. It's how you use it that makes the difference. So once your conscience is activated, we enter one of three cycles. And I'm going to go through these individually, but it's either Satan has two cycles of death. Excuse me, two cycles of shame. So there's Satan's death cycles of shame. There's two of them. Or we can go into God's cycle of grace. Let's talk about Satan's death cycles first. Go to the next slide and let's look at those really quickly. So here's Satan's death cycles of shame. When the conscience gets activated and we fall on the side of the enemy because our conscience hasn't been cleansed by the Spirit of God to serve God, and we fall into a... This doesn't mean that we're not born again. This means that we don't realize how born again we really are. And we fall into this mold. We're going to fall into one of two things. Every problem that you see in the world is people that operate this way. I'll say every problem definitely within believers is because they operate this way. They don't realize how saved they really are. And there's, there's blessed little young preachers standing up saying that you're a goat and not born again because you don't have a desire to fast. You realize how ticked off this makes me? I mean, it's like, and, and the stinking guy's got thousands of people following him. And I'm like, because he's anointed. Just because somebody's anointed doesn't mean they're right. One of two things is going to happen. When you, get full, when you get full of shame, when shame hits you, and shame is a response to your conscience. You're either going to humble yourself and say, Lord, I need your help. Because my conscience told me I was wrong here. And so I'm making a decision to come over into your grace. But the other thing is, is that you fall into shame and one of two things happens with shame. Is that when you fall into shame, you're going to fall into sin. And the sin will cause you to have shame. And you fall into this, this shame cycle. They're both, they're both shame, but one of them is based on sin. The other one's based on self-righteousness. So the sin side is you have shame, so you do something to numb the pain. This is why people do drugs. This is why they smoke and chew and whatever you want to call sin. I'm not coming down on anybody for smoking. That's between you and the Lord. This is why they become alcoholics. This is why they become addicted to drugs. This is why they're sex addicts. This is why they're whatever you want to throw in there. This is, this is why. Because on the inside, they're so full of shame, they have to do something to numb the pain. People are addicted to, uh, to reels on Facebook. Stop that. I'm not addicted. I just like to watch them, okay? I have control over that. I really do. I really do. But I, yeah, anyway, so. <laughs> What's in secret will be made open. Your wife will. No, just kidding. <laughs> Stop again. You're out of time. Um, 
Anyways, but people can really, you know, become addicted to all kinds of things, and it's because they're wanting to escape how they feel as a human. The feelings are real. Shame is a real thing. Even if you didn't do anything wrong, you still are going to feel shame if you're not trusting in Christ. You're still going to feel shame as a human. So they do something to numb the pain. You stick that in there. And what this is is ammo for the enemy. It's ammunition for Satan. And he comes in and says, the one that led you into doing the thing is the one that comes and says, you wretched thing, you look at what you did. He's nasty, man. He's nasty. And then what happens here is you become very aware of your humanity. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so sinful. I'm so wrong. I'm so wretched. And the enemy's just beating you over the head. And then what happens? You go right back into shame. And when you're in shame, what do you do? You numb the pain. Can't handle it. Can't take it. Hate my life. Whatever. You numb the pain. The other thing that happens is when people find themselves in shame is they enter into self-righteousness which is another form of sin, but it's a, it's a holier sin. It's actually the sin that will send you to hell easier than what we call sin. The sin of self-righteousness is the worst sin of all, in my opinion, because it says, God, you sent Jesus, but he wasn't quite good enough. Let me add some things to it. That's a slap in the face to God. If I had time, I could show you more of that from the word, but I'm out of time. Self-righteousness is a way that people cut, try to cover up shame. And what happens is that they enter into a system of works Look at what I did. Look at how much I'm doing. I'm doing all the Bible reading. And again, it's good stuff, but they're dead works because they're trying to get or keep a right standing with the Lord that's based totally, completely on them and not on what Christ did on the cross. So the system of works, they become self-reliant instead of relying on him. They become, they become reliant on themselves, but then they're still aware of their humanity. You know how? Because they'll always fall short of the, of the expectation that they place on themselves. There's a fine line here. It doesn't mean you can't have goals in life and be working towards right things and have a Bible reading plan. But when you get to the end of January and you're 14 chapters behind, don't beat yourself up. At least you read that many chapters, amen? And if you read no chapters, God would still love you. You may not know as much about God as you need to, but he would still love you. And there's no reason to be in shame over that. Come on, I'm speaking to somebody in here because it's just into February and you, some of you probably experienced that. But, <laughs> but there is no shame, seriously. But you become aware of your humanity and then the enemy takes that and he reminds you how much you fall short. And what happened? You fall right back into shame. And you go through the whole process. It's a cycle that people enter. Now, let me show you about how to enter into God's cycle of grace. So God's cycle of grace is this. It's really a cycle. It's really, it starts with humility. It's coming to this place, if you're dealing with sin, it's coming to this place of going, God, I cannot get out of it. I need your help. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You'll never find God's grace outside of humility. Never, mark my words. You'll never find it outside of humility. As long as you are striving, you are, you are putting a blocker to the grace of God, which is the power of God. You're putting a blocker to it working in your life. So when humility is there, you find grace. And when you're really in the grace of God, you become reliant on him, reliant on him to overcome sin and reliant on him for performance sake that you don't have to perform because Jesus performed and that's what the grace of God is all about. But notice that I said reliant on him to help you overcome sin. Anybody that teaches and there, see the problem is right now we have people that are saying that grace message, it's greasy grace. 
And what, what's happened is that there are some knuckleheads that have come out and said, doesn't matter what you do. Well, I mean, God's still going to accept you no matter what you do because you put faith in Christ. But what you do matters greatly. Greatly. It affects your rewards in heaven and it affects the people around you. And I could go on from there. Opens up the door to the devil, all kinds of stuff. So what you do does matter. But the grace of God is the most powerful thing. And the reason why the enemy comes in and perverts it is because as long as people aren't living underneath of it, they don't have what they need to overcome. Grace is the power to overcome whatever. We become reliant on him. We become aware of his finished work. The grace of God makes you aware of what he did. And then from there, we become aware of our new nature, of what we have, of who we are, of what we've been given. And what happens from that? We go back Right into the grace of God, we find ourselves in the grace of God, thanking him for his mercy, for his grace, for his provision, and we stay in that cycle. That's the best cycle to be in. But it all depends on your conscience being cleansed so that you can fall on this side and not fall prey to the enemy. If God is changing your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. If you would like to give, or would like more information on how we are making a difference, visit overcomerschurchinternational.com.